Greetings, and welcome to Blue Stocking, the podcast for people who love to learn, but don't always have time to study. I'm your host, Rory Roberts, and I'd like to start with a quick apology for not releasing an episode on the first, as is customary. I was pretty sick. Uh, I missed two days of work um, and spent a lot of time in bed, which actually brings me to today's topic, sweet, sweet sleep. From the Atlas Obscura website, Why Do We Sleep Under Blankets Even on the Hottest Nights? by Dan Nosowitz. Late July, New York City, a bedroom on the top floor of a four-story building in which I installed an air conditioner with several thousand few, too few BTUs. I barely know what a BTU is. The temperature that day reached into the upper 90s Fahrenheit with humidity just short of actual water. Side note, this person should try coming to Texas. Uh, The tiny, weak air conditioner struggled to cool the room down while a few feet away, I struggled to fall asleep. And yet I was unable to sleep without some sort of covering. In this case, it was the barest edge of my lightest sheet, touching the smallest possible part of my torso. Why this compulsion to be covered, however minimally, in order to sleep? Blankets are common, but not universal, to humans during sleep, at least in the modern day. But historically, the effort involved in weaving large sheets put blankets at much too high a price point for most to afford. From the linen bed sheets of Egypt around 3500 BC, to wool sheets during the Roman Empire straight through to cotton in medieval Europe, bed coverings were for the wealthy. By the early modern period in Europe, which followed the Middle Ages, production had increased enough so that more middle-class people could afford bedding, though not easily. The bed, throughout Western Europe at this time, was the most expensive item in the house, says Roger Eckert, a historian at Virginia Tech who has written extensively about sleep. It was the first major item that a newly married couple, if they had the wherewithal, would invest in. The bed and bedding could make up about a third of the total value of an entire household's possessions, which explains why bed sheets frequently showed up in wills. In place of blankets and sheets, other sources of heat were common at night, especially from multiple people sharing a bed or often livestock. Today, there's minimal anthropological work about bedding around the world. The best is a 2002 paper by Carol Worthman and Melissa Melby of Emory University, who compiled a study of sleeping arrangements in different parts of the world. Recognition of the paucity of anthropological work on sleep is galvanizing, a significant domain of human behavior that claims a third of daily life remains largely overlooked by a discipline dedicated to the holistic study of the human condition, they wrote. This passage passes for outrage in an academic paper. The paper looked into some foraging and non-foraging peoples who live in hot climates near the, near the equator and found that only the nomadic foragers regularly sleep without bed coverings. Everyone else uses some form of covering, whether that's plant matter or woven fabric, even in Central Africa and Papua New Guinea, both tropical climates. Much more common than sheets or blankets are some form of padding. Basically, nobody sleeps simply on the ground as a matter of course. 
As one more example of the goodness of blankets, there has also been a decent amount of research about the calming effect of weighted blankets, which can weigh up to 30 pounds. Studies indicate that they can curb anxiety and even be used in the treatment of autism. The requirement for blankets takes on two components to it, says Dr. Alice Hoagland, director of the Insomnia Clinic at the Unity Sleep Disorder Center in Rochester, New York. There's a behavioral component and a physiological component. The latter is a little more clear cut, so let's dive into that first. About 60 to 90 minutes before a usual bedtime, the body starts losing core temperature. There's a physiological explanation for that. When the body is heated, we feel more alert. And conversely, when the body cools down, we tend to feel sleepier. Cooler internal body temperatures are correlated with a rise in melatonin, a hormone that induces sleepiness. A bunch of doctors tested this out by making people wear skin suits, they kind of look like cycling outfits, that dropped their body temperature just a touch, one or two degrees Fahrenheit, to see if they'd sleep better. They did. Your body's ability to regulate its own heat gets way more complicated than that at night, though. Say you sleep for eight hours each night. In the first four hours, plus the hour or so before you fall asleep, your body temperature will drop a bit from around 98 degrees Fahrenheit to around 96 or 97. But the second four hours are marked by periods of rapid eye movement, REM sleep, a phenomenon in which most of our dreams take place, along with a host of physical changes. One of those physical changes is an inability to thermoregulate. You almost revert to a more, and this is my word, reptilian form of thermoregulation, says Hoagland. She says reptilian because reptiles are unable to regulate their own body temperature the way we mammals can. Instead of sweating and shivering, reptiles have to adjust their temperature through external means, like moving into the sun or into cooler shadows. And for those brief periods of REM sleep, we all turn into lizards. Even in perpetually hot climates, nighttime temperatures drop, and the night is coldest, coincidentally, right at the time when our bodies are freaking out and unable to adjust to it. The night is coldest right after dawn, in direct contradiction to aphorism. So, like lizards, we have to have some way to externally regulate our body temperatures. You may think it's unnecessary to use a blanket at 10 p.m. when it's still hot, but by 4 a.m. when it's colder and you're unable to shiver, you might need it. So we may know from past experience that we'll thank ourselves later for having a blanket and thus force ourselves to use one, or at least have one nearby, when going to bed. There's more to it than that, though. Another strange thing that happens in the REM periods of sleep is that our bodies drastically lower their levels of serotonin, the neurotransmitter most associated with feelings of calm, happiness, and well-being. You know what's associated with higher levels of serotonin? Blankets. Various studies have indicated that sleeping with a weighted blanket can trigger an uptick in the brain's production of serotonin. So yet again, the blanket might be filling a need that our REM adult brains create. The other element that might explain our need for blankets is what Hoagland refers to as pure conditioning. Chances are you were raised to always have a blanket on you when you went to sleep, she says. So that's a version of a transitional object in sort of Pavlovian way. 
basically our parents always gave us blankets to sleep with babies are a bit worse than adults at thermoregulation meaning they get cold easily meaning well-meaning adults put blankets on them and so getting under a sheet or blanket is associated with a process of falling asleep instead of Pavlov's dogs drooling at the sound of a bell we get sleepy when covered with a sheet if you google around for this question you'll end up with a bunch of theories about blankets stimulating the warm enclosed feeling we had in the womb there could be some element of theoretical protection or security imbued by the blanket, which might be another bit of conditioning, but Hoagland thinks the womb comparison is pretty unli unlikely. I'm very suspicious of anyone who implies that this goes back to the feeling of being in the womb, she says. I think that's very far-fetched. Another possible reason is that blankets are soft and feel good. I could not find any studies that examine the question of whether people like blankets because they're soft and feel good, so this may remain a great unanswered question. Uh, for what it's worth, I love slipping under the blankets at night and reading before bed um, and putting away my phone or my Kindle and reading an actual book uh, tends to help me get to sleep faster as well. Another interesting article from atlasobscura.com Atlas is about the once common practice of communal sleeping by Addie Braun. In the beginning, there was a pile of leaves and a cave floor. Sleep was punctured by an orchestra of nocturnal sounds, the murmuring, snoring, farting, rustling, and heavy breathing of many bodies packed together in slumber. They emanated equal parts warmth and stench, but together they passed another night in safety, and it was good. Sleep has been a communal activity for millennia. In the days before central heating and alarm systems, bedmates were a necessity. Entire families would pack together on a single mattress plus guests. Servants often slept alongside their mistresses, and strangers frequently shared a bed while traveling. While people have always needed a place to sleep, beds themselves are a relatively new concept. Beds remained glorified piles of leaves for a shockingly long period of time. The wheel was invented, animals were domesticated, societies were founded, and still, for most people, a bed was some meager bit of cloth providing the most basic level of separation between them and the cold, hard ground. In the grand houses of medieval Europe, much of the household gathered in the great hall to pass the night on blankets or cloaks. If they were lucky, they literally hit the hay, which they stuffed into a sack and used as a mattress. By the 15th century, beds in affluent homes were beginning to take on their modern form. They had wooden frames and other sleeping accoutrements, like pillows, sheets, blankets, and even a mattress. As historian Lucy Worsley points out in her book If Walls Could Talk, Side note, really good so far. Uh, sleeping alone in a grand 16th century English bed would have been a rather lonely experience. The wealthy had acquired a taste for beds, and they built them big, elevated, canopied, and curtained. In fact, the bed was often the most expensive item in the home. Therefore, few but the richest could afford more than one. 
This meant that entire families sometimes shared one bed as well as the covers. People were not discomfited by this, especially not in poor households where the communal bed offered families a rare place to gather and bond. Communal sleeping was not restricted to the nuclear family. Mistresses sometimes shared their beds with female servants to protect them from the unwanted advances of male members of the household. Many servants slept at the foot of their master's beds, no matter what bedtime activity was happening in that bed. But if anyone were to get any kind of rest while sleeping next to others, lines had to be drawn and rules applied. Large families assigned spots to each member according to age and gender. The British called this to pig. In his book, At Day's Close, historian A. Roger Eckert recounts how one 19th century Irish family slept in birth order with the mother and sisters on one side of the bed and father and brothers on the other, followed by the odd guest or traveling peddler. It was not uncommon for strangers and traveling companions to share a bed while on the road. Etiquette dictated that to ensure relative tranquility when sharing a bed with strangers, a bedmate was to lie still, not hog the blankets, and generally keep to oneself. But that didn't always work. In 1776, Benjamin Franklin and John Adams spent a night sharing a bed at a New Jersey inn which was largely past bickering over whether to keep the window open or closed. Clearly, Privacy in pre-industrial America and Europe was in short supply. Most people did everything under the gaze of others. They slept, ate, and attended to personal matters, all in the presence of their family members, servants, and farm animals. Private moments were snatched whenever and wherever they could be. And that often happened in bed. Away from the prying eyes of servants and neighbors, siblings whispered secrets in each other's ears and husbands and wives engaged in candid conversation. The bed acted as a kind of neutral territory between couples, Eckert writes, that it was a place where women found rare moments of autonomy within the patriarchal household. Sexual boundaries were redrawn, lying abed in the dark encouraged wives to express concerns unsuited to other hours. Bed sharing had other perks too. It was an opportunity to transgress social norms. Male servants who shared a bed sometimes engaged, engaged in sexual relations, and it was not unusual for illegitimate babies to be conceived when male and female servants became bedmates. The hierarchical relationship between mistresses and their female servants softened and loosened when they shared a bed. So who finally put an end to communal sleeping? The Victorians. The Victorian home abounded with rooms and was bisected into the realms of servants and masters. This marked a shift toward privacy that had been slowly taking place over the past two centuries. Individual bedrooms were assigned to each family member, and gradually the idea that communal sleeping was improper and downright immoral took hold and trickled down to the lower classes. These separate spheres extended to the marital realm. Couples now not only had their own rooms, but their own beds as well. This offered the appearance of propriety that Victorians coveted. However, there was an even greater reason that his and her beds came into vogue. Disease. During the mid-19th century, there were many anxieties about public health. It was thought that diseases generated spontaneously where foul water and air lived, and a sleeping body was a prime offender. 
In her housekeeping guide published in 1892, Mrs. Elizabeth F. Holt warned readers that the air which surrounds the body under the bedclothing is exceedingly impure, being impregnated with the poisonous substances which have escaped through the pores of the skin. There were other health concerns, too. One Dr. B.W. Richardson, writing in 1880, advised that children not share a bed with an adult because the aged suck the vital warmth from children. Also, no one wants to deal with heavy and disagreeable morning breath. Separate beds had other benefits as well. The late 19th century saw the advent of the new woman. She no longer wanted to be subservient to her husband, and she actively claimed a new level of autonomy within her marriage. This shift was displayed in the middle-class bedroom, where sexual boundaries were were redrawn once again. In the grand old debauched marriage bed, wives were always available to their husbands. Separate beds marked an equipoise between the couple. Twin beds are visually equal to each other. They take up the same amount of space, says Hilary Hines, who authored an article titled Together and Apart, Twin Beds, Domestic Hygiene, and Modern Marriage, 1890-1945. through There's a kind of pause between one bed and the other. There would have to be some kind of conscious negotiation, or at least some conscious decision, to move from one to the other. Twin marital beds had a good run. After the Second World War, working wives returned to the home and there was a greater emphasis on family togetherness. There began to be a turn against twin beds as somehow dividing the couple at the point where they needed to be at their closest and their most intimate, says Heinz. Well into the 1960s, Sears and other large department stores in both America and England advertised twin beds for middle-class married couples. It wasn't until the early 1970s that a consensus was reached. Twin beds were old-fashioned and unhealthy and prudish, Heinz says. No self-respecting couple would willingly embrace twin beds from now on. Recent research out of Ryerson University in Toronto supports Dr. Richardson's assertion that couples sleep better when they sleep apart. In Canada, it's estimated that as many as 30 to 40 percent of couples are embracing the idea. But the stigma of the twin bed remains strong. I don't think there is going to be any revival in twin beds anytime soon, offers Heinz. So communal sleeping lives on, but only for couples. Everyone else is fated to sleep alone. Speaking of sleeping alone, one last article from the Atlas Obscura website by Sarah Laskow. The original nightmare was a demon that sat on your chest and suffocated you. Nightmares, as we use the word today, are vivid personal terrors whipped up by a person's subconscious just for them. A giant snapping turtle, a car that starts backing away from home on its own, a rocket ship with two witches in the back seat eating a potato voodoo doll that causes the front seat to disappear with every bite. But in centuries past, a nightmare was a very specific type of frightening nocturnal visitor a spirit or demon that would sit on a person's chest and suffocate them. The root of the English word nightmare is the Old English mare. In Anglo-Saxon and Old Norse, a mata was something known to sneak into people's rooms at night, plop down on their bodies, and give them bad dreams. When the mare came to visit, the victim would feel a heavy weight. It might start at the feet, but it always settled on the chest and lose the ability to move. 
Mares could be sent by sorceresses and witches. One Norwegian king died when his wife, tired of waiting for ten years for him to come home, commissioned a mare attack. The conjured spirit started by crushing the king's legs while his men tried to protect his head. But when they went to defend his legs, the mare pressed down on his head and killed him. This apparition roamed across Europe. It was a mare in Germany, a mare in Denmark, a mare in French. The visions that the mare brought upon its victims were often called mare rides, martold in Anglo-Saxon, marait in Danish, and marait in Norwegian, according to now-retired folklore scholar D.L. Ashleman. P.S. My apologies for mispronunciation. I think I've gotten them correct, but I could be totally wrong. Ashleman collected amounts, uh, collected accounts of mares from across Europe, as well as advice for how to get rid of them. People troubled by mares might want to place their shoes by the side of the bed and turn the laces toward the place where the where they plan to lie down. Mares snuck in through keyholes or knot holes, so plugging these openings could keep them away. Alternatively, you could enlist a friend, wait for the mare to appear, and then plug the hole to capture it. Mares were thought to be female, and a few men in these folkloric accounts were able to trap a beautiful wife this way, but she always escaped when she rediscovered the place she'd come through. If a mare was sitting on you, you could try putting your thumb in your hand to get it to leave, or you could promise it a gift, which, would, which it would come the next day to collect. Today, it's thought that the mare's particular nastiness was a way to explain a type of sleep paralysis that, as historian Owen Davies writes in Folklore, affects perhaps 5-20% to of people in their lifetime. Sleep paralysis happens at the edge of sleep, usually just before sleeping or just after waking. Sufferers can see and hear without being able to move or speak. And some people who experience this state also report feeling a heavy pressure on their chests and a sensation of choking, and the sensation of a dark presence in the room. As a boy, I would experience a frightening sound, somewhere between white noise and insect buzzing, while, feeding, while feeling a dark presence in the room, the writer Andrew Emery explains in his account of sleep paralysis. In the worst case, he writes, I'll fight to regain consciousness and having told myself I have done so, will still find that there's some foul presence in my bedroom which then proceeds to punch me in the stomach. At this stage, my mind, which seconds ago knew it was experiencing sleep paralysis, is now convinced I'm the victim of a real-world demonic attack. There's no precise treatment for sleep paralysis, nothing better than the superstitions and charms used by medieval people to keep away the mare and its attacks. The episodes are, Davies writes, a moment when reality, hallucination, and belief fuse to form powerful fantasies of supernatural violation. A truly terrifying experience, demonic or otherwise. And to round out our talk of sleep today, I have 22 facts you probably didn't know about sleep by Chris Thompson. Number one. 12% of people dream entirely in black and white. Before color television was introduced, only 15% of people dreamt in color, whilst older people dream in black and white more often than younger people. Number two, two two-thirds of a cat's life is spent asleep. 
I can totally vouch for that. <laughs> Number three, a giraffe only needs 1.9 hours of sleep a day, whereas a brown bat needs 19.9 hours a day. Number four, humans spend one third of their life sleeping. This obviously differs depending on the age of the human, but on average, it's around a third. Number five, the record for the longest period without sleep is 11 days. This was set by a Californian student named Randy Gardner in 1964. This is definitely not recommended, however, as Randy experienced extreme sleep deprivation and others have died staying awake for this long. Number six, it's not uncommon for deaf people to use sign language in their sleep. There are many instances where people have reported their deaf partners or children using sign language in their sleep. Number seven, dysania is the state of finding it hard to get out of bed in the morning. We've all no doubt found it tricky to getting out of bed every now and again, but those suffering from dysania find it particularly difficult. It is most likely to be a form of chronic fatigue syndrome. Number eight, parasomnia is a term that refers to unnatural movements during your sleep. Some people have even committed crime due, due to parasomnia, including sleep driving and even murder. Number nine, the, the sensation of falling when half asleep and jerking yourself awake is called hypnic jerks. No one is totally sure why hypnic jerks occur, but they are deemed to be perfectly healthy. However, they may be increased by anxiety, caffeine, or physical activity close to bedtime. They are more frequent in young people and decrease as we get older. Number 10. It's thought that up to 15% of the population are sleepwalkers. This is according to the National Sleep Foundation. It's also a myth that you shouldn't wake someone who is sleepwalking. Number 11. One in four married couples sleep in separate beds. Number 12. Sleep deprivation will kill you more quickly than food deprivation. Number 13. Those born blind experience dreams involving things such as emotion, sound, and smell rather than sight. Number 14. Within five minutes of waking up, 50% of your dream is forgotten. After an additional five minutes, 90% of recollection is gone. Sigmund Freud believed this was because dreams represent our repressed thoughts and, go and so our brain wants to get rid of them quickly. However, it's much more likely due to our brain simply being used much more as soon as we're awake, and so we forget much of what we've dreamt about. 15. Pain tolerance is reduced by sleep deprivation. There is a study that suggests that cutting a person's sleep in half dramatically reduces pain threshold, although it's not 100% clear why. Number 16. 41% of the British population sleep in the fetal position. This is from research done by Professor Chris Idzivkowski, Director of the Sleep Assessment and Advisory Service, though five other sleeping positions have been identified. The log, the yearner, the starfish, the soldier, and the free faller. Number 17. Sleep experts have discovered a direct link between people's favorite sleeping positions and their personalities. Number 18. Ideally, falling asleep at night should take you 10 to 15 minutes. If it takes you less than 5 minutes, chances are you are sleep deprived. Number 19. Humans are the only mammals that willingly delay sleep. Number 20. 
sleeping on your front can aid digestion. Hands should apparently be positioned above the pillow so you're in a free fall position, whilst laying on your left side can apparently help reduce heartburn. Number 21. People who earn in the range of 70000 a year get the best sleep. Uh, this comes from a report by the Sleep Council. And number 22. Fear is said not to be the main emotion in nightmares. Instead, researchers have found that it's most often feelings of sadness, guilt, and confusion. And one final sleep fact that I found in another article and had heard before was that you never see a face in your sleep that you have not seen in real life first. So whether it is from a picture or you pass a stranger on the street or somebody in a movie, even if you don't actively remember that face, you've seen it somewhere before if you see it in your sleep. I found that very interesting. Once again, thank you for listening to Blue Stocking. Thank you for sticking with me. I know there have been a few episodes missed recently due to scheduling and illness, things like that. I do so appreciate uh, having people stick with it and continue to listen. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please feel free to email bluestockingpod at gmail.com. That email address will be in the show notes. Once again, thank you for listening. Have a lovely day.